This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW Sydney. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. Hello, I'm Lauren Martin here with Madeline Gleason, a lawyer and senior research associate at the Caldor Centre. Madeline is spearheading a new series reflecting on the Andaman Sea crisis five years on. Madeline, can you first take us back to what happened in 2015? Lauren, it was memorably, if terribly, called a game of human ping pong. At the height of the crisis around May 2015, some five to 8,000 people were believed to have been abandoned and stranded on eight or more rundown trawlers and left adrift at sea while Malaysia, Thailand and Indonesia each refused to allow them to disembark, instead pushing them back out to sea and towards each other, hence the expression human ping-pong or playing ping-pong with human life at sea. So give us some more context here. Why did this happen? It was a coincidence of two factors, really. The first was an increase in the number of people on the move through these maritime routes, uh, driven in part by outbreaks of violence in Myanmar. Uh, Human movement through this region is not new, but in the first half of 2015 alone, 31,000 people, predominantly Bangladeshis and Rohingya refugees from Myanmar, were boarding smugglers' boats in the Bay of Bengal and the Andaman Sea, trying to reach safety and new lives and livelihoods, uh, mostly in Malaysia. The second factor was changes further down the smuggling chain. According to UNHCR, general practice prior to 2015 was for smugglers to ferry passengers to shore in smaller boats and disembark them discreetly in southern Thailand before transferring them overland to camps in the jungle along the Thai-Malaysian border. Many asylum seekers and migrants were held there against their will, subject to further abuse and deprivation, and several hundred people are believed to have been murdered or died from illness, starvation and dehydration in these camps in 2014 alone. Then in early May 2015, these practices were disrupted, following the discovery of a series of mass graves in and around the smugglers' camps and a subsequent crackdown on smuggling and trafficking networks by the Thai government. The crackdown had an immediate effect on smuggling networks in the region. While smugglers and their agents and brokers went into hiding, there were still thousands of asylum seekers and migrants on board those vessels in the Andaman Sea who were waiting to be ferried to shore. But it became increasingly difficult to disembark them. Smugglers cut their losses, so to speak, and rather than risk capture consolidated the passengers onto a few big trawlers and left them stranded there before absconding in smaller vessels. And how did it all end? The immediate results were fatal for some. A number of people did not survive the journey. Many of those who did survive were rescued and brought to shore by Archinese fishermen in Indonesia. Others washed ashore elsewhere in the region. Eventually, the three countries most immediately involved, Indonesia, Malaysia and Thailand, began to convene a series of meetings to discuss rescue and disembarkation and broader issues around maritime migration in the region. The intention was both to resolve the immediate crisis and also to discuss how the region might better respond to similar crises in the future. And this all happened before the mass exodus of Rohingya from Myanmar, 
after that wave of terrible violence in 2017. Now, those events caused something like three quarters of a million people to flee to neighboring Bangladesh, and where they're mainly in the coastal town of Cox's Bazar. Is the region any better prepared now than it was before that 2015 crisis? Lauren, that's one of the key questions that this new Caldor Centre series is seeking to address. It's clear to say that the region was ill-prepared prior to the 2015 crisis. Despite the existence of intergovernmental fora, they were not set up and did not have the mechanisms to react swiftly and decisively to that crisis. Then in 2017, uh, when, as you mentioned, this next extraordinary outbreak of violence occurred in Myanmar and prompted another mass exodus, the region wasn't tested in the same way. After crossing the border into Bangladesh, the majority of the Rohingya refugees remained there in Cox's Bazaar rather than getting on boats in the same way as they had in 2015. So it's now when the true test comes as to whether the region is any better prepared, willing and able to respond. In April of this year, 2020, a fishing trawler carrying several hundred Rohingya refugees was rescued by Bangladesh after attempting to reach Malaysia, and that boat spent almost two months at sea. The rescued passengers were severely malnourished, dehydrated, some could barely walk, and at least 30 people were believed to have died. Eerily reminiscent of similar scenes five years earlier, almost to the month. One man on board said they were turned away from Malaysia because of fears around coronavirus outbreak. But it didn't stop more boats, and there have been more boats, uh, believed to be carrying several hundred of people trying to reach Malaysia. Indeed, there could be boats out there right now. We just don't know. The complicating factor now is COVID-19. It's fair to say that when ASEAN, the Bali process and other meetings were taking place in 2015 and 2016, they couldn't have predicted what would happen if the same crisis occurred in the midst of a global pandemic. But that's what we have now. Mm, so in what ways does COVID-19 change what's happening now? We know much less now. In 2015, this crisis was the subject of intense scrutiny, reporting and coverage by human rights groups as well as journalists. There were some journalists actually on boats in the seas finding these vessels, uh, sending back photos, videos, interviews from the water. Uh, and those images were very graphic and they certainly captured international attention. Now we don't have the same freedom of movement and certainly international journalists don't have the same opportunities to be travelling through the region, getting a good grip on what's happening and feeding back those images. So without those photographs, without those journalists, without human rights organisations being able to travel as freely, there are probably boats out there now, there may be boats out there now, but we don't know if and when and where, we don't know who is on board, and much more might be revealed in time than we know now. And now with those hundreds of thousands of Rohingya refugees who've been in this temporary situation in Bangladesh for about three years, seeing no prospect of resolution. And we have this worldwide public health crisis that demands good hygiene and physical distancing, which are very difficult in places like refugee camps, Cox's Bazaar. Which brings us to another key difference, which is Basan Cha. This is a small island belonging to Bangladesh, 
formed in 2006 by deposits of Himalayan silt. It's vulnerable to cyclones, storms and erosion. It's often submerged at high tide and during the monsoon season. But despite the precariousness of this small piece of land, Bangladesh has at, at various times since 2015 proposed it as a place to which thousands of Rohingya refugees might be shifted from the overcrowded camps in Cox's Bazaar. Now, this is a proposal that has been met with concern and criticism by the UN, human rights groups, many Rohingya community leaders, even some locals. But Bangladesh has forged ahead with it. It's now built housing, flood barriers, a cyclone shelter and essential facilities on the island. There were plans for moving refugees there in 2019, but those did not eventuate. And immediately prior to COVID-19, UNHCR said that it was not yet ready to endorse relocation. But then everything changed. In May of this year, exactly five years after the first Underman Sea crisis, several hundred of the Rohingya refugees who had been rescued at sea trying to reach Malaysia were brought back to Bangladesh and taken to Basanjar for quarantine, purportedly to prevent the risk of the spread of COVID-19 through Cox's Bazaar, which is grossly underprepared and ill-equipped to deal with such an outbreak. This move has prompted some concern that COVID-19 may provide the cover for a larger transfer of refugees to the island, finally fulfilling the long-awaited plans of decongesting the Cox's Bazaar settlements. But whether such developments are ahead remains to be seen. So it's a very delicate situation and an ongoing challenge, clearly. Does that add an exigency to this series that you're bringing together for the Kalbur Centre? The five-year anniversary of the Underman Sea crisis was always going to provide a timely opportunity to pause and reflect back on those events, return to the question of the region's preparedness for mass maritime movements of refugees and other groups. But yes, the current situation does make this seem particularly critical. The idea behind this Cowdor Centre series is to bring together a range of voices that can consider how far the region has come in the past five years, and encourage debate about the steps yet to be taken. We've sought a, a mix of views, scholars in the region, including refugees and stateless people with lived experience of these issues, NGOs, policy think tanks. We hope it can inform regional discussions about protection and help create real solutions. Madeline, thank you. That's Madeline Gleeson, Senior Research Associate at the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law. You can find her introduction to the series, The Enderman Sea Crisis, Five Years On, at the website caldorcenter.unsw.edu.au. Thanks for listening. Thank you.